Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Father, we bless your name, and we thank you for um, your wonderful spirit and uh, the way he brings us together as a family. Um, we can study your words. We can um, uh, we can communicate uh, your love to one another. Um, we know that this is possible because of the wonderful things that you do for us, and so we recognize that. We also realize that uh, studying your Torah without your assistance is is a lesson in futility. So we. We, we ask you, Father, that you will be with us tonight. Show us the ways. Uh, show us your words. Help us to um, recognize uh, your blueprint within your words. Help us to understand uh, so that we can put them into application into our lives, into our families, um, so that we may be a witness for you. We seek to do things that would be pleasing to you, and we know that as we walk in your words uh, that this is pleasing to you. Help us to uh, not be judgmental of one another, um, not to be harsh to one another, but to forgive one another and to serve one another, even as the Master Yeshua served one another, served each and every one of us. Uh, bless you for all that you do in Yeshua's name, Amen. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> and I may close that. No? Oh, they closed theirs. Okay. We are in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Um this particular verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The verse itself seems like it would be self-explanatory, but again, as with just about every verse in Galatians, it has been engineered to say something that it is not really saying. Um, we, of course, know that one of the reasons why we, as Messianic followers of Yeshua, should learn to correctly interpret not only Paul's letters, but um, all of God's words. One of the reasons that Paul comes into play, and I don't even really need to say this, but I'll say it anyway, anyway is because Paul's letters, unlike anyone else, has been used to drive a wedge between um, the church and the synagogue in the sense that Paul is used to prove some supposed um, theology that the law has been done away with. And so whenever we find verses like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, it's natural to insert an, an assumed um, belief that the law itself is a curse. And yet, the verse is really saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, not that he redeemed us from the law. He's coming? Okay, then let me give you that and I'll get, give her another one. And so I shouldn't have to comment on passages like this, but nevertheless I do. There you are. Chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, 
13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, kept, by becoming a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Let's look at the comments. There are golden moments when the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture. Now, really, hermeneutically, that should be our first rule of thumb. Um, get it in your mind that if you're reading the Tanakh and you find a passage that's a little confusing, see if the passage has been um, expounded upon in the Apostolic Scriptures first. All right? Um, and if it has, then bonus. You, you know, most of your homework's done. Yeshua and his Talmudim have already hashed out the issue, or maybe Shaul has hashed it out, or he's used it, and, and the, or the Ruach HaKodesh has, has get, uh, shed light on the issue through that uh, second witness. Or, conversely, if you're reading the Apostolic Scriptures, and you run across a passage that you can't figure out, see if the passage is a quote from the Tanakh. <laughs> Bonus! If it is, then, again, you're working Scripture with Scripture, and it's always the best. Um, interpretation of scripture itself because God doesn't contradict himself right right now he may confuse us from time to time but the confusion lies on our part God's not the one who's confusing yeah it's, it, and that's good for us it stretches us but in this case Shaul uses what's n almost near parallelism um, where we have a word a verse saying one thing and then we have a verse saying the same thing else somewhere else uh, and the same and, and Paul's aware that the, one of the best teachers or I'm sorry, one of the best principles of teaching is repetition. So he'll say something twice, um, and in this case, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, the information given to us there seems to mirror what we're reading now in chapter 3, verse um, 13 and 14. So let's read chapter 4 verse 4 through 6, and I have it quoted right for you in case you don't have your Bible open. Quote, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit into the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now that's from chapter 4. Now, let me just read this, and then you'll see how they closely parallel one another. The impact of Christ redeeming those who name his name for salvation from the curse of the law in 3.13 bears a striking similarity to 4.4 and the first part of 4.5, quote, to redeem, to redeem those under the law, end quote. That we have previously defined the term under the law as a position reserved for those whose hearts have not received messianic regeneration is key to understanding Paul's phrase, quote, the curse of the law, end quote. I understand them to be tandem phrases. They work together. That is, the person who lives, quote, under the curse of the law, end quote. Is everyone following me, by the way? Am I coming to? Okay. The person who lives under the law surely lives, quote, under the law as well. Now, that's the key to understanding the, the, the phrase. I, I, I don't really need to pause there and explain that modern Christianity has engineered the phrase under the law to be the equivalent of keeping the law. Their phrase, when we... It's quite natural within Christian circles. Not everybody believes this, but it seems to be the prevailing Christian view that when we use the phrase under the law, it refers to keeping God's commandments. And that, of course, usually singles out the ones that the Messianic community is most famous for, at least on the visible side. Well, we got Shabbat, we got kosher, we got the other festivals, we got um, wearing tzitzit, and things like that. And so, when your average Christian encounters this verse and Paul says or teaches, we're not under the law, they take that phrase and, and make it the equivalent of keeping the law, or we're not, uh, we're not obligated to keep the law. And, the, and, and Paul does teach that we're not under the law. And, 
even your average Bible reader can pick out that the phrase is a negative statement. It's whatever it is, we know it's bad when Paul says we're not under the law. I mean, he's he's speaking from a position of thank goodness we're not whatever that is. So, I mean, at least we've caught that part right. But it's a shame that we've equated under the law with Torah observance because that's that could not possibly have been what the apostle meant. So, but so what happens is later on in his letter he uses the phrase um uh, the curse of the law, and that helps us to understand what he means, what he really means by under the law. So both phrases describe a position of ill favor and eventual punishment by God. God, why would God punish you for keeping His Torah? Isn't that an interesting question? Under the law speaks of existing under the condemnation that Torah pronounces against persistent sinners. Notice the persistent. If you want to circle that or highlight that, that's fine. The idea is that the persistent sinner is the sinner who is not regenerated. He's not, he's not reformed. He's like the prisoner that's he's in, he's in prison because he's not changed his ways. And rightfully so. You know, when, he, when parole comes up and he goes to the parole board, they ask him, you know, why should we let you out? And he says, well, I hate all people and I want to kill everybody. They're not going to let that kind of person out. They want people who are not persistent in their, in their desire to disobey God. Um, or God wants people who are who are who are really bent on obeying Him. So we cannot say that under the law means keeping the Torah. It's quite the opposite. Under the law is is a position reserved for people. It's a term reserved for people who are willfully disobedient of God. God has done everything He can, in a sense, and provided everything necessary for us to be able to not only want to walk into His ways, but but to be able to do it. Thus, in the economy of the Torah community of ancient Israel. To live under the curses instead of under the blessings was to be recognized by God as living in sin and disobedience to his mitzvot, his commandments. God punishes disobedience. It's a very basic Torah principle, right? God punishes disobedience and God does not bless wickedness. Now it's interesting that the phrase wickedness in my statement there, God does not bless wickedness, it's, it's, it's a heart attitude, but it manifests itself by what we do or don't do, right? The wicked person eventually does wicked things. So that when we say the sinner, we're not talking about someone who sins once or twice, and, and true to form, we all sin we all sin more than once or twice, right? But rather, we're talking about someone who is not only unregenerate, but someone who, who revels in his sin, who likes his sin, and is not interested in being changed by God. I don't want you, in other words... I don't want to repent, and I don't want to turn from my wicked ways, the sinner would say. And so God says, fine, I've got a clause for you in my law. And the clause says, cursed is anyone who, and, and then fill in the blanks. So the person who, who is a willful sinner to God, like the Torah would call him, uh, uh, describe him with a sinning with a high hand. Um, this type of person who willfully, defiantly, and, and even more so in Israel, who defiantly says to God, I, I, dare, you to, I dare you to punish me, you know? It's different for the, it's it's really different than the pagans who disobey God but don't know they're disobeying or not or not aware of the parameters of the laws that they're breaking. Israel is quite different because they have been given the laws, they've been shown what to do, what's right and what's wrong. Plus, they have the priests who should be teaching what's right and what's wrong. Even more so, are they culpable when they step out of line because they've got the Torah telling them what to do? So that's why I wrote the phrase "thus in the economy of the Torah community." And thus it should be true of us today. The church is, whether they like it or not, or recognize it or not, the Torah community. 
Yes, they are. All right, and so when we have God's words telling us what to do, and then we still refuse to obey, then we we find ourselves candidates for God's punishment. All right. Um, Surely Moshe instructed the people that obedience invited God's blessing. In this sense, there is a doing to the law that will invite either the blessings or the cursings. That that doesn't necessarily stem first from faith. It's it is the mere doing in that sense. Um, because the Torah is, is meant to be done. It was given to be done. Although it's given to be done out of a heart of faith, but you can still do it devoid of faith, and it'll either work or not work for you to an extent, in a, in a limited way. Uh, the, 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 we're simply talking about what? The law of sowing and reaping? You know, you can be Saddam Hussein and... May his soul rest in peace. You can be Saddam Hussein and plant corn, and the earth will reproduce. You know, in other words, the earth doesn't discriminate between who's planting the seed. And the Torah describes it in a way to say what? The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There's a principle at work. The Torah allows for a certain amount of, of reaping if you do what it, what it says to do. However, but the Messiah did not merely... I'm sorry, let me back up. Uh, David, do you have a... Do you need a paper? Maybe, maybe not. I think you do. <laughs> We're kind of like smack dab in the middle of that main paragraph there. Um, right in the middle where it says, Surely Moshe. We're in chapter 3, verse 13. Surely Moshe instructed the people that, that obedience invited God's blessing while continual and unremorseful. And those are the key words. Continual and unremorseful. Um, disobedience invited God's curses. And I put a little footnote to Deuteronomy so you can look and see where God tells them, hey, this is, you act this way, I'll act this way back, or I'll, I'll react this way. The Torah really is more or less a, a quid pro quo document. I do for you, you do for me, that type of thing. But Messiah did not merely redeem our physical lives from diminishment of blessing if we failed to perform the words of Torah. He didn't just save us from sin. Yeshua actually redeemed both body and soul from the ultimate curse pronounced upon the individual who failed to graduate to genuine lasting faith in the giver of the Torah, a redemption spoken of in legal terms throughout the apostolic scriptures. Yeshua actually not only saved us from sin, but he also saved us from the proclivity to sin. He actually instilled within us the ability to walk in a renewed, um, uh, what would we say, devotion to God. He puts within us the ability to walk into his ways. So that he doesn't just say, all right, I'm going to save you from sin, now go keep my law. He actually says, I'm going to save you from sin, ask you to keep my law. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to empower you to keep it as well. I think that's a really cool deal. I mean, if, if we understood it from that perspective, why would we shrink back from walking in Torah? Whoever said we can't keep the law? Does anyone, you ever heard that phrase? No one can keep all of the law. <laughs> all right. The point... <laughs> No one can keep all the law. Now, if, you're, if, you, if we want to play with the words, yeah, if we want to play with the words keep, then we could understand that no one could. Yeah, and you guys in Mark's class are learning that right now, right? You're talking about that, yeah. Actually, you guys went over that last week, I think. You did that little exercise on uh, Shomer and Shamar and yeah, and all that stuff, yeah. Exactly. Um, but in the sense that we safeguard all of it, we can. And, we're, and, we're, and that's why Moshe says it's in your heart and in your mouth so that you may do it. It's in Deuteronomy. Okay, the plain sense of the verse then is not confusing. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the Torah. He did not redeem us from the Torah itself. We didn't need redemption from the Torah. Yet, the, again, the, 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 
it, it's a shame that the um, standard Christian theology is that the Torah is viewed as a curse, a, a millstone around one's neck that one must be loosed from or be set free from. I'm free from the Torah. No, you're not. You're free from sin. Yeah, you're free from sin. And in your freedom, we could do a whole study on biblical freedom. In your freedom, you're free from sin so that you're free to obey. Not free from obedience. We've got the whole thing turned around. And the devil's just laughing. Right? He's thinking, ha, ha, ha. Because you guys aren't, aren't keeping Torah, you're candidates for God's lack of blessings. I'm, I'm avoiding the word curse in that sense. Because I, I, I know it's, hard, it's a hard pill to swallow for Christians to say, I'm under the curses as a Christian. And yet if you're walking in blatant disobedience, you're under the curses. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm just using Torah language there. But in what way did Messiah become a curse for us? There's a heresy that actually says that Yeshua became sin. And it's dangerously close to heretical. But in a mystical way, he, he became, I mean, it says he became sin, but we need to understand what it means by that. Because it does say in the verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Did he become a curse? I thought he was sinless. In what way did Messiah become a curse for us? Quite simply, Yeshua was put forth as the propiti uh, propitiation for our sins when he died on the cross. Now this is, this is I'm speaking to the choir now. This is, you guys should know this, and every Christian knows this. But watch this. As the sinless sacrifice, the Father deemed it necessary to place the corporate sin of the world upon his Son so that his righteousness might be vindicated in the biblical truth that the wages of sin is death. Because Yeshua became the sin bearer, then Yeshua had to die. So in a sense, he died as a sinner, even though he didn't sin. He died as the sin bearer. The weight of the world's sin came upon him, therefore God had to say, you're, you know the penalty is death. So of course he had to die because of that, even though he didn't sin. So he does. It's just, and it's identical if you think about it to the animals in the sacrificial system. They aren't the ones who sinned. You know, I'm the one who's married. I go out. I cheat on my wife. God forbid. I cheat on my wife. But because I do, I I come to the priest and I say I've sinned. I've come to confess my sins. He says that's good. Where's your sacrifice? What sacrifice? Well, the Torah prescribes that if you sin, sacrifices are needed. So bring your sacrifice. So I bring my sacrifice. One of the rituals of bringing the sacrifice is before the animal dies, I lean my hands upon the, the head of the sacrifice and I confess my sin uh, with the priest there. In, in essence, um, I'm transferring my sin to the animal. And the animal dies in my place. I get to walk away. right? So that substitutionary picture is perfectly seen in Yeshua. I'm not the one who should be walking away. And we all know this. I'm the one who should have been up on the tree. And you know what? Every Christian knows that, but I guess we don't really kind of think about it when we get to this verse. Um, so the word cursed in our verse there, in the quote from Deuteronomy, I'm sorry. Yeah, because it is a quote. He says, for it is written, kakatuv, as it is written. Um, the word cursed in the quote from Deuteronomy 21, cursed it is everyone who's hung on a tree, only stands to reinforce the Levitical notion that the sacrifice truly bears the weight of the sin imparted to it. In other words, the reason why it's cursed, let me see if I say it here before I actually, let me read the rest of the commentary, then I'll explain why he's on a tree. Um, to be sure, if there was found no substitute for the, pit, for the party guilty of a capital offense in the case where he's hung on a tree, then he was to be hanged as a sign that God had deemed him cursed. The idea is that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that's the sentence that the person carries out. In other words, there's no, there's no, there's no more justice for him. He's dying for his sin, in a sense. Um, 
and there is there was a sense in the in the Tanakh period when if the sinner did not repent and he was brought before the court and he was found to be culpable of the crime he was guilty then the the punishment is meted out and if the punishment was a capital offense then he dies in a sense he pays for his sin right but that's the last sin he'll ever pay for con, con, uh, conveniently, it's the last sin he'll ever commit, right? Because he's dying at that point in time. So anyone who's hung on a tree at that point dies for their sin. The, the way, the reason why we bring it to Yeshua or uh, um, make the correlation to Yeshua, like like uh, Paul's doing, is because he's trying to show that look, um, Messiah has taken the full measure of our sin and taking it to the cross, and he's dying for it. Now, of course, again, that's that's a standard Christian theology. But what's I guess what I'm trying to say is the import of the passage is the fact that they're cursed if they're on the tree to begin with. It's not so much cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree as so much as it's cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He's 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 paying for his sentence. He's at the end of his rope. He, there's nowhere else he can go. He's going to die. Um, and why Paul brings that up is because at that point in time, the justice is served. I mean, we use that phrase in, in today's, you know, go catch the criminals so that justice can be served. In other words, the books have to be balanced. Justice has to be served. And in in Paul's, in their case, any any ritual that would seek to bring righteousness to an individual outside of God's method is to suggest that what Yeshua did wasn't enough. That's why it's, I guess, conveniently labeled legalism. So he's trying to explain to them, look... Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, therefore the curses aren't, aren't on us anymore. The proof is Romans 8, 1, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in, who, in what? In Yeshua. So, um, we, we don't live under the curse. And the whole point of that is, we don't live under the law, which is under the curse. That's the whole point of that verse. Under the law means under the curse. Um... In the mystery of the Godhead, Yeshua, the sinless Lamb of God, became the object of such punishment on behalf of those who name his name for salvation. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. You can read Corinthians. As for 3, 13, 14, and 14, we'll explore the furthering parallels to four, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, when the passage arrives in 4. So we won't go there right now. Let's turn now to verses 17 and 18 in chapter 3. This is an interesting passage because it also establishes a hermeneutic principle that if the church were consistent in, they would understand that it's impossible to say that the law has been done away with. Watch this. Paul's arguments are really airtight. I, I promise you, they're great. Verse 17 and 18, what I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Okay, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now let's read the, uh, uh, the, the commentary. Comments. The first part of this passage, the mention of the promise, becomes a key element of later Pauline literature. The word promise there that he uses in the Greek um, has no Hebrew equivalent. That's what's interesting when I say the promise. The nearest equivalent there is in Hebrew is the phrase word, davar. So that when God says to, like if God were to walk up to Patrice and say, you're going to receive a million dollars, I give you my word. That's enough. I give you my word. That's like to say, I promise. Paul calls it the promise, but really it's wherever God would say, the word of the Lord said to Abraham, here's what's going to happen. The word. The word, or, or 
and Abraham believed in the word of the Lord, or or God's word says whatever. So davar, word in Hebrew, that's the nearest equivalent that we have to promise. But Paul understands that throughout the entire Torah, there is an inheritance or a word of promise that is spoken of to Abraham and to his offspring, and he takes that concept and he packages it in a neat little phrase called promise that we have here in Greek. That's why he says, um, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. But really, again, it's just through the word of the Lord. After all, God is both able and willing to do that which he promises or says he will do. And so God doesn't really have to swear, does he? If he says, I will do it, does he really have to say, I swear I'll do it? I mean, gosh, if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. We don't really have to get him to swear. But for us, sometimes we, we make promises to one another. You know, I'll be there. I promise. <laughs> All right. So I'm just playing with that word there. Paul's aware of that. That God would make an unbreakable promise to Avraham, Avraham and his offspring and then bring it to pass vindicates both the father's competence, he can do it, as well as his trustworthiness, he will do it. Not only can he do it, he will do it. For Paul, it is imperative that the existing covenant member, existing covenant member, not the covenant member would uh, to be, but the existing covenant member understands the proper relationship of the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant. Allow me to quote Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. Now, I've done this for in the uh, uh, Saturday class where we're studying Torah, so let me just pull a quote from there. They wrote a neat little book called Torah Rediscovered. FFOZ published it 10 years ago. Great book. You guys like that book? Yeah. Um, I should give a plug for RIL and tell you that um, they republished the book under Shorsheen Publications, uh, like like maybe a few years ago, um, and he made some improvements to it and everything. So, uh, Shorsheen, S H O R S H I M, I believe, publications, not Shoresheen, but Shorsheen. Um, might be Shorsheen. You might try both. Shorsheen Publications. Google it, find it, and then if you want to get the book and and order it, uh, you can tell RIL that RIL sent you. Or Ariel and I are actually in dialogue with one another on, on email. Yeah, Ariel Berkowitz and I. In fact, he's reading part of my Galatians commentary, and he says, Ariel, can you change the, the little footnote that you wrote and tell tell your readers that it's an updated publication? I said, sure, if you plant one in my hands, I will. <laughs> he hasn't yet. He's in Israel. <laughs> and and, and uh, um, He's a great guy. I He and I just missed each other because I also worked for FFOZ back in 2000, and he was in Israel at the time, and we missed each other. He I was working down at the Denver office, or the Lakewood office, and uh, he was in Israel doing some projects. And so, Anyway, um, he and I still, we dialogue on email. Um, he's kind of new to this whole thing, though, so if you don't ask him about covenantal nomism. <laughs> I was teasing him. I was like, what, RL? You wrote, you wrote Tori Discovered, you don't know about our, uh, covenantal nomism? He's like, no, tell me how that works again. All right, um, Let's see. So here's what he had to say uh, 10 years ago. Quote, For those who trust Hashem for the promises, the proper order for faith and obedience is set by the sequence in which the covenants were given. In other words, faith must precede obedience. Now, that's the paradigm picture. Faith preceding obedience. That doesn't say that as a child you actually obey before you have genuine faith. And in fact, you do. As a child, if you are a child being raised in a Torah-observant home, you are actually obeying the Torah before you have personal faith in Yeshua. That's okay as a child. But what Paul's aiming at is from an, uh, the, uh, um, the Galatians aren't children, they're adults. And for them to try and walk into Torah before they've laid, laid hold of faith in God is the incorrect order. That's all he's trying to say. Um, let's see. 
Faith must precede obedience. But the kind of faith accepted by Hashem is one that naturally flows into obedience. That's the challenge that we, the Messianic community, have for our Christian counterparts. If you say you believe in Jesus and you really love the Lord, why wouldn't you want to be Torah observant? There's the challenge. And when the excuses start pouring in, well, I'm not under the law, or I don't want to do that, I'm not going to be bound, there's actually a... a, a um, evidence, and I'm not the one to judge, but God knows, there's evidence that at many cases, either either some people are, are, are um, clouded by uh, confusion or laziness or stubbornness. God's Spirit is asking them to walk into Torah. They're stubbornly re- refusing. Or, God forbid, in some cases, they're really not even saved, and therefore they don't have a desire to walk into Torah, and therefore they're, they're, they're in deception. So, I mean, any number, and fear, fear itself too. If some people say, well, you know, I'd like to keep Torah, but I'm afraid. Well, the spirit of Messiah should, should allow us to overcome fear. And I'm not saying that everyone's got to be Superman, step into it and, you know, da, 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 I can keep it. But if you're fearful, then, then talk with some people and, and get prayer and, and ask God to, to change your heart. He can and will do it. True obedience never comes before faith, nor is it an addition to faith. It's not like I have faith and obedience. Actually, they're two sides of the same coin. You're carrying one coin in your pocket with faith on one side and faithfulness on the other. One coin. That is proven both in the grammar of the Greek as well as the grammar of the Hebrew. It is always the result of true biblical faith. To rephrase this in terms of the covenants, okay? The covenant of promise, which was made with Avraham, that's the salvific side of it, or the trust part, must come before the covenant of Moshe, which, or covenant of obedience, which is symbolized by Moshe. So faith comes before obedience. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure those promises by obedience, again, that would be just a simplistic uh, legalism, right? I keep the Torah so that I can be saved. No one in the first century thought that way, at least not on a large scale. But some people in today's society seem to think that not only the Judaism thought that way, but they seem to think it themselves. If we were to put Moshe first, attempting to secure these promises by obedience, we would be going against Hashem's order. This, by the way, is the key to unlocking the difficult Midrash used by Shaul in Galatians 4, 21 and 31, coming up. All we could hope... By the way, that, that little parenthesis, that's Ariel Berkowitz's insert. That's not mine. We'll find out if that's true or not when we get to it. All we could hope for would be a measure of physical protection as, as, as walking into Torah and a, and a knowledge of spiritual things. But we could not receive justification... Of course, you realize that the word justification there is just church lingo for saved. We cannot be saved or, or, or we cannot receive justification or a personal relationship with the Holy One through obedience to the Torah. It all had to start with faith. Avraham came before Moshe in the Torah narrative. And that's the proper order in which the sequences should be understood by us. But Moshe did not cancel out Avraham. That's the um, clincher. Moshe didn't cancel out Avraham. Okay, watch this. I, I think I did say it. Um, the two complemented each other as long as they came in the proper order. Now watch this. Now I'm going to speak to the church. Put plainly, far from diminishing or annulling the Abrahamic promise, which when I say Abrahamic promise, just think salvation or faith. Far from diminishing or annulling the Abrahamic promise, the Torah actually comes along 430 years later to support and complement it. The, there's, a, there's an ages-old argument in the church. You guys know what it is? What's the, what's the blank? Grace, yeah. Gosh, did you guys rehearse that? Yeah, law versus grace. 
Why is there a competition? It's not law versus grace. In this case, grace would be seen as Yeshua and law would be seen as Torah. But actually, if Abraham came out here and Moshe comes here and Yeshua comes here, well, isn't it actually grace first? Didn't God say to Abraham, I will bless you, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, blah, blah, blah. This is the promise of grace. And then the law comes second. So even in their, in their, uh, um, in their little example, those who would say that law and grace are incompatible don't even understand the players. Actually, grace came first in that sense. Law comes afterwards, and does law cancel out grace? That's the, that's the question that Paul's raising. All right, so look. Even if Christian commentators disagree with my conclusion that the Torah complements the Abrahamic covenant, even if they disagreed there, surely they must agree with the plain sense of Paul's words, which speak of the impossibility of the Torah doing way with the promise. In other words, even if they say grace annuls law, surely they agree that law does not annul grace. See how that works? So I can have this argument in multiple churches and I'll usually end up with most people agreeing that grace annuls law. Notice that the time of timeline goes this way in events, right? From older history to current history. And so they, rec- they, they conveniently start here with the law of Moses and they say when Jesus came or when Yeshua came, grace canceled out law. We're no longer under the law because once grace came, law was done away with. But my argument is... Don't you know that in Paul's example, Abraham comes before Moses? Right? And they go, yes. And I go, using the logic that a later covenant annuls a previous covenant, which of course we know doesn't happen. But using, that's their hermeneutic key. A later covenant annuls an earlier covenant. Well, if that's your hermeneutic key, well then let's just shift everything over once. You trying to tell me a later covenant annuls a previous one? They would all say, no, no, no. God didn't give Moses to cancel out Abraham. Well, once I get them to agree with that, in other words, I change their hermeneutic or correct it and say, a later covenant cannot annul a previous one. Once they go, yeah, I agree with that, then all I got to do is shift back to the current argument. You go, then why could this? Yeah, see how that works? It's airtight. It's airtight. So, <laughs> so, so we're talking to our Christian friends and family, and this is kind of what we kind of need to keep in mind, because this is exactly what Paul says. Read the verse again. What I mean is this, verse 17 and 18, this is Paul talking. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, later than what? Later than what? Later than the promise to Abraham. Yeah, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside, cancel out, nullify, the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. In other words, Paul's simply arguing that this doesn't do away with this. Now we'll explain why that in a second. Because, again, most church people would not argue that this does, does away with this. That just wouldn't make any sense. But why would God go from grace to law and then back to grace again? I'm confused. Alright, so we'll talk about that here in a second. But let me finish reading my commentary. So, Back up down to the bottom of page 43. Even if Christian commentators disagree with my conclusion that the Torah complements the Abrahamic covenant, surely they must agree with the plain sense of Paul's words, which speak of the impossibility of the Torah doing away with the promise to Abraham. And I, I, I emphasize that just because surely they would. I don't know of a single Christian who would teach that law has, has nullified grace. Okay? 
Okay. New Testament. <laughs> All right. Here's our problem, too. Where, what book are we in right now? New Testament. Who's Paul's exempt, exempt, example of faithfulness or righteousness or exemplar? Abraham, yeah. We cannot pull all our theology from the New Testament. Paul didn't. And those who say, well, Paul is a New Testament Christian, have not read Paul. So I would simply, I would simply advise them that Paul's, Paul's strongest arguments for grace come from Abraham. Plus, here's another one. You ever, read, you ever heard of Hebrews 11 called the great something chapter? Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. Yeah, you guys ever heard that? You guys ever look at the list of the people who are on that faith chapter? Not a single one of them lived, before the, uh, lived after the cross. Yeah, by faith, by faith. All, every person on the list, every person on the list lived before Yeshua. Yeah, New Testament what? Okay, so we just, I, in other words, I, I guess we have to kind of ed... And do it nicely. I'm being kind of funny in class, right? Because I'm trying to get a point across, and you guys are, are allowing me. But if we were really having this discussion with um, well-meaning friends, family members, and people who are Christians who don't understand this, then, of course, don't be as dramatic as I'm doing. Um, but just show them, say, well, let's, let's, let's look at these passages, you know? <laughs> and do it politely and cordially. All right. So I hope that kind of helps us understand. The, the kind of the misnomer of we're New Testament only doesn't hold any water, really. All right. Yeah, yeah, they're out. Yeah, and see, yeah, yeah, and see, actually, and and we're going to see later on that for Paul, because the, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, it works both ways. It just depends on, because we're talking about a two-sided coin, right? I've done this before. All right, all right, there's our coin. And the first side is faith, and the back side, which you can't see, is Faithfulness. One coin, two sides. And what ends up happening is, depending on where the people are stuck, if you have people who are stuck in faith only and don't care about faithfulness, we could call this obedience. Right? You have people, more or less, if I, could, if I could caricature it, the church focuses on faith side of the coin and kind of conveniently ignores the obedience side. And if you jump into Jewish circles, the caricature is that obedience is what matters most and faith seems to be put off the side but in the true biblical model faith and faithfulness are both important and so they're struck to one coin and so really all you do is depending on which group you're referring to you maybe flip the you work from this towards that or you work from this towards that that's exactly by the way what paul and james did it's almost like they tag teamed paul was trying to get his his audience to understand that um faith leads to, let's see, no, he was trying to get their audience to understand that um, obedience is, well, no, it's, it's faith leads to faithfulness, whereas James was trying to get them to understand that obedience is a result of faith. In other words, they, they, I may have worded that slightly different, but more or less they're working the same, they're working the same, uh, um, they're, they're the same theology, they're just kind of meeting each other in the middle, because they had different audiences who had different problems, so... All right, let me finish this here. Then I've got a little bit of time. We can actually kind of talk about this because I, I can't go on to another one. It would take too long. All right. Um, God did not... <laughs> look at my commentary on page 44 at the top. God did not somehow start with salvation by faith, move to salvation by works, and then switch back to salvation by faith. Okay? 
and I'm missing a quote. <laughs> I'm missing a quote mark. So I got two behind salvation by faith, two quotes there, salvation by works, two quote there, and only one under faith. Okay, I got to correct that. Um, he didn't. In other words, I'm using this. He didn't go salvation by faith, then salvation by works, and then salvation by faith again. That's not what God did. And in fact, if you ask many in the church today, how are the people in the Old Testament saved? You'll get some weird answers. You'll get anywhere from they were saved by keeping the law to they were saved by the animal sacrifices to they weren't saved at all to, I don't know, <laughs> to they went to purgatory and they waited for Jesus to show up. They're waiting. Yeah, you get all kinds of weird answers. Well, guess what? When Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he meant for everybody in every age at every possible situation. Everyone that was ever born and everyone that ever will be born. Everyone that came before Yeshua, everyone that lived when Yeshua was talking, and everyone that would would, um, read his words after he is gone, including the people who would go on to live on the moon if we ever get that far. Everyone is saved the same way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No end comes to the Father. It's an exclusive statement. So we know that it covers everything in the past. Abraham, saved the same way as we are. Moses, saved the same way as we are. And of course, every Christian today saved the same way that we are. So we can't, once for all, yeah, the sacrifice is once for all, and that's the proof. If his sacrifice wasn't once and for all, then it either wasn't once or it wasn't for all. That's the whole point. Well, they weren't saved, they, they were saved by keeping the law. I guess it wasn't for them then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very exclusive, yeah. And, we, and even though we can't see it, we can't go back into the Torah and see Jesus' name there, that's not to say that that, that faith isn't there. In fact, we can actually see hint, glimpses of it in the apostolic scriptures. So, And of course, in a, in a sense, in hindsight, the Christian church knows this. They really do. If you ask them, you know, otherwise they, wouldn't, they, otherwise they would swallow the hellish lie that does come out sometimes, that Muslims don't need Jesus, or that Jews don't need Jesus. And you know what? That does happen, unfortunately. It's a shame. You get whole denominations, maybe some of you know them, that sign charters that they agree not to proselytize the Jews. Not, not, not witness to the Jewish people? Well, who's going to witness to them then? We've got the light. We've got the answers. You're going to expect the Muslims to witness to them? Yeah, good luck. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not against the Muslims. They need Jesus too. Yeah, they do. And so we're called to witness to everybody. We've, we've got the, we've got, and here's, here's a prime example sitting right here in front row. She is taking the gospel to the Muslims. That's got to be very, very difficult. What if she swallowed the lie that says, you know, they don't need him. They don't need, they don't need Jesus. They've got Muhammad. Just like the church is kind of saying, oh, the Jews don't need Jesus. They've got Moses or something like that. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, we all do need Yeshua. And so God uniquely equips some of us to go here and some of us to go there. You're uniquely equipped to go to Muslims. How do they react to that? Do they say, we don't need him? I'm, I'm curious. Some of them don't know. It offends them. Oh, it depends. Okay. Yeah, in fact, the Pharisees and the scribes and many people, not all of them rejected him, by the way. A great number of people accepted him. But to those who did reject him, he was still faithful to Hashem, faithful to his father, and faithful to his father's words. If he were not a faithful witness and did not demonstrate love and mercy to even the smallest of the community, then they could have had legitimate charges to um, really stick on him. You know, you're a Torah breaker. You're a lawbreaker, and you disrespect God the Father. Why should we listen to you? 
No. He actually came and stepped into the love of the Father, modeled it, modeled toward obedience, and modeled servanthood. And so really, in the end, they have no excuse. His very life was, was, his very life was their judgment, a judgment on them, in the end, really. And I think there's a passage that speaks of that. So God did not somehow start with salvation by faith, move to salvation by works, and then switch back to salvation by faith. Shaul's disagreement with his detractors then is seen as a difference over which order these two covenants should be placed in. As we have learned, the order in which they appear both in Scripture, in other words, Abraham shows up before Moses, as well as historically, in other words, sometimes sometimes what's written in the Torah confuses us because the books have been switched around so we don't know which one comes first. But thankfully, um, um, when it comes to Moses and Abraham, they're both not only right in the right order, Genesis and Exodus, but they're also that way historically. In other words, the books are not only in the right order, but they're also, that's the way they happened. Um, so let's see. Uh, Avrahamic precedes Mosheic. Genuine and lasting faith in God will always precede genuine and lasting obedience to God. All right? We can talk about what that extreme looks like in a second. Quite surely the influencers, these are the Judaizers that the church will call Judaizers. You guys already know why I don't like the term Judaizer. Surely the influencers had the sequence backwards, placing the proverbial cart before the horse. In such a situation, the covenant member to be, remember? The covenant member to be, he's the candidate. He's First and foremost, that would have been the Gentile in Paul's day. They're the covenant member to be. Because on, on a natural level, Jewish people are already in the covenant. Every Jewish person is in the covenant on a, on, a, on, a, on a limited scope. We'll talk about that later. And they're there simply by being offspring of Abraham on the literal level. God made a promise to Abraham's literal offspring. Before we go off and spiritualize it, and I'm not trying to say that it's wrong to apply it spiritually to you, to say, I'm a spiritual son of Abraham. That's not what I'm saying. That is true theologically. But first and foremost, God made a promise to a real man, flesh and blood, who would have flesh and blood children. And the covenant promise is a grandfather clause that catches all of them. So physical offspring of Jacob are covenant members on a limited level. So they don't have to find their way into the covenant. They're trying to help people who are not in. That's where the whole proselyte thing comes in. That's why I say, um, in a situation, the covenant member to be, usually is a Gentile. He mistakenly believed that the promise referred to as the inheritance in verse 18, sprang forth from obedience to a ritual implied in the Torah. Okay? The ritual of the proselyte. Hello? You don't turn Jews into Jews. They're already Jews. You turn Gentiles into Jews. All right? You don't proselytize the Jews. All right. In this order, faith results from works and human achievement. In that order, in their program, faith results from works and human achievement. Supposedly. Um, in this order, faith in God, the promise, is rendered non-effectual and unnecessary. It's not put forth as the primary um, ingredient of being a covenant member. In, in the proselyte ceremony, the primary ingredient of being a covenant member was ethnicity. And so it conveniently sidestepped God's program of faith and obedience. It focused on the wrong issue. Although Jewish identity is not... It becoming, becoming a Jew is not wrong. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with the proselyte ceremony. There really isn't. Paul is simply combating a theology that had its focus out of focus. Uh, to use his words, they had zeal, but it was misdirected. That's, that's, the, that's, what he, that's what he would say in Romans. Paul would not have his Talmudim, his students, falling for such blatant, errant theology. 
The inheritance must arrive to humanity by other than human means in order for Hashem to receive His proper acknowledgement. In other words, to become a child of promise is outside of something I can do. It's merely something that I receive. Think of Abraham again. Abraham could not bring the promise to pass. God made a promise to him. The promise is that you'll have a son. Abraham stepped out into his flesh in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 16 and tried to produce that son. And God said, uh-uh-uh, it ain't going to happen that way. I'm going to wait till you're old and nearly shriveled up, you and your wife, and then I'll bring the son. To prove to you, God says, that my promises come by above human means. That's why Abraham's the paradigm for this whole argument. Abraham received the promise not by doing, but by believing and accepting. God did the doing, therefore God gets the credit. And that's, why, that's where Paul's going with this whole thing. The inheritance must arrive to humanity by other than human means in order for Hashem to receive his proper acknowledgement. The son of promise, which is Yitzchak, but it's ultimately Yeshua, right? Isaac's the type and shadow of Yeshua. He's the, he's the, um, he's the shadow and Yeshua's the type. Um, the son of promise, Yitzchak, was to be born not of human effort, but by divine fiat. Likewise, Yeshua came what? Not by human means. I mean, Joseph looked at his son and said, I did not bring you into this world. You know, God brought you into this world. He visited my wife and did something that I couldn't do or that I should not have done. Likewise, the Messiah, the ultimate son of promise, will be born of miraculous circumstances, proving his connection to the antecedent theology that God alone can secure the promise for his children. So, any questions out of that set of scriptures so far? Much of what we talked about is standard Christian theology, but some of it is very foreign to Christians and it's new it's kind of new territory um, any questions out of that so far do you see that how as we go through Paul he's not only explaining very carefully for the people of his day and that would be our first uh, lesson is trying to figure out what it means to them but he also and of course I think this is where the spirit stepped in the spirit stepped in and allowed what Paul wrote to be applied to today again most Christians know that it's salvation is by faith through Yeshua, by faith in Yeshua. And most Jewish people, for some reason, don't know that. But what's interesting is the rift between the two groups, the, the Jewish people and the church, interestingly, usually falls somewhere in the Torah, in the pages of the Torah. Um, how would history have been changed if, and this is just a hypothetical question, because I've got one minute left. So if you answer, great. If you don't answer, it's, 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 it's a rhetorical question, I guess. How would, the, how would the synagogue have responded if the church would have continued in her Torah observance instead of breaking away from the synagogue you know, within the first few centuries? How, would the, how, would, how do you think the Jewish people today, maybe you can think out loud, how do you think the Jewish people today would respond to a Christianity whose earmark is Torah obedience and also faith in Yeshua? Wouldn't that have been an interesting witness? <laughs> We'd have great jealousy. Gee, that sounds like Paul in Romans chapter 11. Yeah. Because that's the way it should be. Yeah. Jealousy that God reached out to a non-people group and brought them into the covenant of people and made the non-people group part of his people without having to make them go through any kind of strange hoops of conversion. Yeah. It certainly does make you jealous. Yeah. It's like it's it's like if all of you were actually f actual blood 
birth family members of a family and a very wealthy one. And then I, the papa, said, you know what? I've got an inheritance and all of you are in it. And, you know, I'm Daddy Warbucks and I'm going to give you all a slice of my, my good stuff when I leave. And you're all, of course, all happy because you're all my children. And then I say, you know what? But before I die, and I open the door and I say, hey, does anyone else want some money? You, down at the end of the hall. You want some? And I bring him into the room and say, hey, have a seat. Sign this paper. You're one of my sons too. How would that make you guys feel? You'd be like, who's this new kid? You know, why does he get some of our money? He's not one of us. That's, that's, that's the jealousy that provokes the Jewish people. And so it's not just faith in Yeshua. It's that when, when they see us, when they, the Jewish people, see us non-Jews living within the blessings and the parameters that are described in the Torah because we're walking in obedience, that will cause them to be jealous. But when we walk around saying, we're not under the law, that's not proving anything except our ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. How could a goy? You know, that was, that was the question in the first century, yeah. The, the Gentiles, what's wrong with the Gentiles? They're Gentiles. Well, what do they do that makes them so bad? Nothing, they're just Gentiles. You know? That was the whole thing. How can Gentiles? I mean, that was, that was really thinking outside the bun, or thinking outside the box. That, sorry. Um, they could not fathom that. A Gentile? Not, not just, I mean, it was unthinkable. To quote Tevye, unheard of, unthinkable. You know, just no. No, 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 Paul, you've crossed the line. Gentiles coming into our family? No. Jews accepting Yeshua? That we can stomach. Gentiles accepting, uh, becoming covenant members? No, 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 we'll kill you. <laughs> and they tried, they sought to kill him, so. That was it. All right. That's good. Next week we'll continue. Right, my aim is to get through as much of Galatians as possible. Uh, I don't think we'll make it through chapter 6. Um, but we'll, go, we'll, we'll keep forging along until they stop us. Um, and I don't think they'll give me another session. So, And I'll probably have you give you co- homework next week. Just none this week. So, You're done. Let me close in prayer then. Father, we bless your name. We know that you're faithful. We know that you uh, are able and willing to do that which you've promised to us. We know this because Yeshua, your son, is the guarantor of the promises that you've given to us. All of the promises that you've given to us find their fulfillment in Yeshua. And so as we look to him, we know that you will bring to pass that which you've given to us, both to the people of Israel of old as well as us, the grafted in ones today. And so we continue to place our faith in you. We we uh, say no to human achievement and to um, uh, self-effort. And we say, Father, um, continue to cause us to be righteous so that we can inherit that which you've given to us. You bless righteousness, so cause us to walk in your ways. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to forgive one another and love one another. In Yeshua's name, amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>